Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cass, if I may, I would like to uh, start our episode today with a quote, which is something that we don't do typically. Um, but I thought this passage was so lovely and perfect for our topic today that it's kind of like a must. We simply must. <laughs> <laughs> and and this quote is from um, the late 19th century French writer Octave Uzan, who had quite a penchant for fashion history, I might say. I mean, he oh, wrote yeah. a ton of books, a ton of books. At least five of his very numerous books have been given over to fashion, particularly women's fashion, and an article of which, women's fashion, he described as such in his very first book, which was published in 1882 as, quote, is any toy more coquettish, any plaything so charming, any ornament more expressive in the hands of a queen or spirit like yourself? When you handle it in the coquetries of your intimate receptions, it becomes the interpreter of your hidden sentiments, the magic wand of fairy surprises, the defensive armor against amorous enterprise, the screen of sudden bashfulness, and a word, the scepter of your perplexing beauty. <laughs> that is quite lovely. And he is, of course, speaking about the myriad of ways women of the past used fans as not only practical instruments for cooling and dainty fashion accessories to complete an ensemble, but most importantly, for our purposes today, when we're talking about when women used it as a means of nonverbal communication. And we are thrilled to have fashion historian Laura Camarlengo join us today to speak about the language of fans. And Laura is the Assistant Curator of Costume and Textile Arts at the de Young Museum in San Francisco. And her exhibition, Fans of the 18th Century, is about pretty soon to complete its run. Um, and it will end on June 30th, 2019. And Cass, I, I think it's important as historians to throw in the year into like what we're talking about now, because as I work as a curator, I come across invitations and all of these um, things all the time in the archive, and they don't have a year on it. It just says March or... Yes, yeah, so a hundred years from now, when people <laughs> listen to our podcast, <laughs> as we know they will. <sighs> so I'm just going to start throwing in the year from now no, on. It's great. It's smart. It is. It's very helpful, actually. Yeah, um, but Laura's exhibition is really amazing. It's it's a survey of the museum's um, permanent holdings of the most exquisite fans from what one could argue to be the pinnacle of the art of fan making the 18th century. It's, it's incredible. So um, before we dive into the interview portion, I just want to give a heads up about the quality of the audio because for the very first time on Dressed, we had some technical difficulties. Oh, no. Yeah. So what happened was there was a, a faulty mixer on my end of the recording. Um, and, and when we got done, I could see my end. 
it was there, the file was there, and then I literally watched it like disappear into the ether with an error message. (laughs) It was like, poof, gone. Bye-bye. So thankfully, the the, um, program that I was using to record Laura's End captured me as well. Um, So this episode is not going to be the usual quality, but our very amazing producer, Casey, was able to clean it up and work his magic. So thank you, Casey. Well, Casey, thank you for making it possible for us to extend now a warm welcome to Laura. Welcome to the show. Laura, thank you so much today for joining us, especially since you are due to give birth um, practically any moment. (laughs) We actually fast-tracked this episode today to beat the baby coming, hopefully, crossing our fingers right now, right? Um, So first of all, how are you feeling? Thank you. I feel great. Um, My husband and I are very excited for her arrival, and I'm super excited to be talking to you today, too. Oh, yay! So um, I thought first we might start with a little bit about uh, the early history of fans. Your exhibition that's currently on view at the DeYoung focuses on folding fans of the 18th century. But can you tell us a little bit about the types of fans which predate the 18th century? Because this is really interesting. Oh, sure. So as you mentioned, the exhibition features 18th century European fans from the collection of the Fine Arts Museums. And it's on view at the de Young through June 30th. So if you're in the area, please come visit. But there are many different types of fans that have been used since antiquity, uh, from rigid hand fans to folding fans. One of the precursors to the fans that are on view is the Japanese court fan. And these were made of thin strips of wood, usually cypress, and pierced and held together with a rivet at one end. Cool. So, I mean, and these fans were, were used in a lot of different early cultures. Like you mentioned Japan, but also like they were used in ancient Egypt. Exactly. They were used in ancient Greece and Rome, particularly those rigid ones. Like, you know, when you think of like a scene like in Cleopatra and someone is fanning you, like that's their job. <laughs> it's, it's probably going to be one of these like rigid fans, right? But using a fan in terms of like cooling or air conditioning was was one of the functions of early fans, but I think they were others, yes? Yes, absolutely. So um, again, we talked about the ongoing need for aeration, um, particularly in early cultures. Um, Some fans, of course, also had social significance. So the Japanese court fans um, were a signal of court status and nobility. Um, And these were the ones that came into Europe early in the 15th and 16th century and start to be adopted by European royalty, which eventually trickles down to the middle and lower classes. Yeah. And and actually, you mentioned Japan. And I just have to say, one of my all-time favorites is the fact that samurai warriors in Japan also carried fans. And they were called Goombai. I'm sorry if I'm butchering that. But um, they were war fans. And they were symbols of authority. And one of the things that I love about this so much is the fact that this really kind of underscores this point that we talk about undressed again and again and again, which is like how the meaning of the objects or the dress that we wear shifts over time in cultures. Because I'm from the Midwest, and I'm pretty sure that there are certain parts of the United States right now where a man appearing in public carrying a fan would literally put them in physical danger. Mm-hmm. Um, but but these, these samurai warriors were carrying fans because a fan was a symbol of their authority. Absolutely. It was totally a symbol of power. And it's funny, um, you mentioning different parts of the U.S. with fan carrying. 
as often happens at the fine arts museums with the show being up, we've had a lot of people come through the gallery with their own fans of all different genders and backgrounds, um, which I think is one of the fun things about being in San Francisco for this presentation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so where and when do we start to see the, the appearance of folding fans? Because historically, not all fans have folded. Exactly. Um, and I loved your reference thinking about Egyptian fanning and things of that nature where the fan is really rigid. Um, in Asia and in particular Japan, we start to see folding fans as early as 7th century. And it depends on what fan source you consult for the date, but in general around the 7th century. And then these come over to Europe by the 15th and really by the 16th century. Yeah, yeah. And and I think we're going to get to that here in just a little second to talk about like the intersection of like how in the 15th and 16th century in Europe that be, they became objects of fashion. Um, but, but one thing I would like to interject here or ask you really is like in terms of your exhibition, we're going to talk about collapsible fans, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and there are a couple different types. Can you tell us the difference between what is a brise fan and a folding fan? So brise fans develop from the Japanese court fans and they're formed without leaves. They're made by rigid sticks that are secured at their tops by ribbon, and then they have a rivet at the bottom end. Folding fans, on the other hand, are made with a continuous pleated leaf that is supported by sticks. And these leaves can be made of vellum, um, they can be made of paper, they can be made of textiles. The leaf folds upon itself between the guards when it's closed. Mm -hmm. So as you said earlier, fans really become, you know, kind of fashion accessories in Europe. Um, in the 15th and 16th century. And and one of the things that I found so interesting about this period of time is that this is when trade with the East was really expanding. And this brings up some really interesting intersectional discourses in terms of fashion. And what I'd like to ask you about here is, are the makers of the fans in this context? Because I read this really, really fascinating statistic that in 1699, Chinese fans were imported into England. So that's just England because, and and the reason I'm bringing this up is because within Europe, it was really actually Italy that was the epicenter of fan making. And and I'm wondering if you can speak to this sort of cross-pollination and trade that was happening in the production of fans between the East and the West. Trade between Europe and Asia, as you noted, was increasingly active and really flourishing by the 17th century. And this was really encouraged by Dutch, British, and French trade companies. Asian fans and fan parts, especially sticks, if you're making a folding fan, the stick component, um, were imported to be joined with European leaves. So in that case, if Italy is the epicenter of fan making, you could import your sticks from somewhere in Asia and then add an Italian leaf to them. Um, This further contributes to the popularity of folding fans in the 17th century. They're being imported in parts in mass. Um, and they really become the dominant fan type by the 18th century. Yeah, and, and another thing that I thought was really interesting is that sometimes both of these epicenters of fan making were kind of producing for the opposite market, right? Yes. So, so the East might be like, oh, well, they like this kind of fan in the West, so we're going to make that. But then the West might also be like, oh, we will export these types of fans to the East. And 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 this is something that comes up again and again and again in the history of, of textiles, actually, that like these this cross-pollination of trade actually affected the motifs that were being produced by each market as they were trying to sell to each other. Exactly. And we definitely have some examples in the collection that have 
examples of chinoiserie, borrowing from sort of um, Chinese aesthetics, um, and the idea of them either coming from Asia to be catered to European tastes, mm-hmm. um, or or sort of the reverse as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so fan making really grows and blossoms in Europe at this point. And, and at this point, it's really not uncommon at all that these professions were being governed by guild systems. And fan making was no exception to this. So European fan making was usually part of a guild. What do we know about the craft and the process of making fans within these guilds? By the 18th century, over 20 different kinds of craftsmen and women, I should note, were involved in the production of fans. Um, And these range from leaf designers to painters to stick carvers and gilders. Leaf sticks and finished fans were also imported and exported by the fan-making countries of Europe. So this includes Italy, as you noted, um, France, England, the Netherlands. In France, for example, many of the specialized craftspeople were organized into different guilds by their specialty. There were also, though, master fan makers, and these were the people who assembled the fans and oversaw the process of their making. By the second half of the 18th century, almost 150 fan masters alone are recorded by the guilds in France. Um, In London, as another example, they had over 800 fan craftsmen and women by the mid-18th century. And and one of the things about the 18th century that I thought was actually like incredible is the fact that I can't remember, I'm sorry, I can't remember if it's, if it's France or England, but there was a copyright act in 1734 where fans become considered published objects. Yes. With the printed fan leaf. Yeah. This is amazing. And this starts in England and we have some examples of printed fan leaves in the collection. Um, But the idea again is to protect the, you know, intellectual property and the designs of the different fan makers. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break here for a word from our sponsors. But when we come back, we're going to speak more about the incredibly luxurious fans that you have in your exhibition. Welcome back, Laura. We have now positioned ourselves in the 18th century Europe when your exhibition begins. So I would like to ask you, who exactly were carrying fans at this time. Fans reached their peak production and use in Europe in the 18th century, and this was really spurred by a consumer revolution that enabled small luxury goods like fans to be available and affordable to a growing middle class. They were comparable to 19th century millinery, which I know you've covered in your podcast, in that they were really ubiquitous across social classes. Not only were a fan's materials, motifs, and techniques an indicator of the wearer's wealth and status, but the way they handled their fan was also an indicator. And when I say techniques, I mean whether the fan was a painted fan leaf, which would be more expensive and costly and also more require more time to make uh, versus a printed fan leaf, which could be rapidly reproduced. Right, right, right. And, 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 and in terms of some of the materials that were being used in the luxury fans that you were talking about, we're talking about tortoise shell. We're talking about diamonds. We're talking about rubies. I mean, ivory, which of course was not banned at this time. But some of these materials were like lux, 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 lux. So these fans were, were in and of themselves not objects of utility. They were objects of luxury, really. They were, they were kind of like your handbag today. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great comparison. I mean, a fan could be your Birkin, basically, at this time. <laughs> yes, very much so. 
Um, on view in our galleries, we unfortunately don't have any jeweled examples, but our fans show precious materials like ivory, tortoiseshell, mother of pearl, which were sourced from regions and localities around the world. We also have a lot of fans with additional luxurious treatments. So we have some with etched colored glass inserted in the sticks, various ones with metallic powder paints like brass powder, and also gilding. Mm-hmm. And again, the materials attested not just to the vitality of global trade, which we've been talking about, but again, to the wealth and the status of the fans carrier. Yeah. Um, and, and also, you mentioned that there are popular themes. Um, and so, so, so many of these 18th century fans were painted. And within the depictions or within the motifs that are painted on the fans, there are very distinct themes in the 18th century. Can you tell us about some of these? So the designs and motifs on 18th century fans really reflect the spirit of their times. We see romantic, domestic, and pastoral vignettes, which appear quite frequently, and they really reflect a prevailing social interest in passionate and romantic love, and also an interest generally in the pastoral. We have mythological subjects, um, which were first popular in Italy, but become more widespread with increased travel to that country by Europeans on grand tours. And showing mythological subjects attests to the bearer's worldliness. Yeah. Um, we also have religious themes, biblical tales, which would have been very well suited if you're carrying a fan to church, for example. And then we have reproductions of paintings by leading contemporary artists, which spoke of knowledge of the arts. Yeah, and, and this this leads me to a question that I want to ask you about, because uh, what exactly was the relationship of fan painters to fine art painters of the day? Because there are plenty of rumors that exist that perhaps Watteau, Fragonard, Boucher, I'm talking about major, major artists of the day. There are rumors that they might have potentially painted a fan here or there, but but nobody knows where they are in a museum collection. It's just kind of like this uh, question mark. Mm-hmm. So that's a great question. In the exhibition at the De Young Museum, we've presented the fans in two rotations. We're currently on our second rotation. And in each, we've had an example of what I'll call a quote unquote artist fan, which reproduces a famous artwork, but not is not necessarily made by the artists themselves. Ah. In the current installation, there's an Italian fan dating to about 1750, 1760, which features an artwork by Guido Reni, the Italian artist. And this fan's leaf design is based on one of his famous paintings of Bacchus, the Roman god of agriculture, wine, and fertility, with his consort. Um, Fan leaves of Italian provenance were often ornamented with images of celebrated Italian paintings by Renaissance and Baroque artists. These included Rennie, um, but also Raphael and um, Giulio Romano. And so you could go and travel and purchase a fully mounted fan or a fan leaf um, and then bring it back to your country. And if you purchased a fan leaf in Italy and returned home to a different part of Europe, in that case, you could mount it at home, which would reduce import duties. We also, though, in our collection have another fan, which has an image by Francois Boucher on it. Are they thinking about the grapes? And again, it's one of those things where we don't think it was actually by Boucher, but it has a connection to the very famous painting by him. It's so interesting. I mean, just like all of a sudden in my mind, I'm like, it's almost like a museum gift shop, right? Where where you might be able to like see something like incredibly amazing, a painting by this particular painter, but you also might be able to take home the object 
that is a souvenir of seeing that exact thing. But of course, it would have been hand-painted at this time. This is not being printed. So it was somebody else making a museum gift-shopped object. <laughs> but it was probably incredibly luxurious and incredibly expensive at the same time. Oh, yes. And in the examples that we have in the collection, again, you're seeing the same use of luxurious materials, of gilding and things like that, which really speak to the status of the carrier. Yeah. So something that I found really interesting was uh, we're talking about like, you know, this hierarchy between artistic mediums like the fine arts versus the fan painters. But really by the 19th century, this, this idea had completely broken down. You know, we have known examples of fans that have been painted by Degas, Manet, mm-hmm. Gauguin. So why this shift, Laura? So in the 19th century, there's widespread interest in Asian and in particular um, Japanese art, which ties into the roots of European fans. And this coincides again with this sort of widespread interest in Japanese art and culture. And this inspired many artists to paint fan leaves and be intrigued by fan leaves. But additionally, at this point, well-heeled women owned numerous fans. They were either worn or could be displayed as a leaf, for example, um, which meant there was also the potential for significant income from fan painting, um, which is sort of a practical concern. And so in the case of Degas, for example, most of the fans that he made, with I believe one exception, were not folded and mounted on sticks, but matted and framed for display. So in their time, they were often cataloged um, among paintings and drawings and exhibitions of his work. Right, right. They were art objects. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this this sort of relationship between art and industry was was really kind of cemented in the 19th century, right? Um, and 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 some of these luxury purveyors of fans, which become incredibly famous, like they were the go-to houses of the day. Um, they actually began employing fine artists around the same time to paint these fan leaves that you're referring to, and one of them was Alexandra. And besides Alexandra, would you like to tell us about, or or you can tell us about Alexandra, but also like, who were some of the great 19th century fan makers? Because there's a few and they're amazing. Yes. So one other notable company, which I mentioned because it's still in operation today, um, would be de Villeroy. Founded in 1827 by Jean-Pierre de Villeroy. In the 19th century, the house was awarded numerous medals for their craftsmanship at different world exhibitions. They were also the official supplier of fans to various queens, such as Queen Victoria. They created fans for um, Eugenie when she married Napoleon III. They created a beautiful white ostrich feather fan that was worn by the Queen of Egypt to her wedding in 1938. And one thing I find fascinating about them, too, is that they were also known for their advertising. So they developed promotional fans during the 19th century, where they collaborated with artists like Paula Reeb. But they also published a leaflet explaining the language of the fan. Um, and I bring this up because it's still very much cited today um, in different fan circles by fan historians. It comes up a lot in the conversation of fan history. The language of the fan was something that they promoted, but is widely discussed as being a marketing tool to boost the sale of fans in the 19th century because they had fallen out of fashion following the French Revolution. And I'm going to stop you right there so we can have a little bit of a sponsor break, but we're going to come back and talk about specifically the secret language of fans. Welcome back. 
Laura, I just love this particular quote um, from the French fashion magazine Le Mode, which describes a fan as, quote, an ornament, a weapon, and a toy. And I'm hoping we can switch gears just a little bit here and talk about and get into the manner in which women employed fans in both the 18th and 19th centuries. You know, in, in 1711, so it's just like early 18th century, there was this writer from The Spectator, his name was Joseph Addison, and he said, quote, women are armed with fans as men with swords and sometimes do more execution with them. What does he mean by this? So thank you for referencing this quote. I love this quote. Um, And as you noted, it was published by the English Daily, The Spectator in 1711. The writer Joseph Addison essentially goes on to say that women are masters of the weapons they bear. In this case, the weapons are fans. And he jokes that he has created an academy for the training of young women to learn to properly handle their fans. Um, This training, its gestures, he claims, are based on the court protocol for fan handling. And so what would that be exactly? Well, according to him, he issues all of these sort of humorous commands, draw your fan, hold it just so, things like that. But it's very much, in his case, said in jest. There was an etiquette for properly handling a fan. And we talk about this a little bit in the exhibition, and we also see it in contemporary portraiture. Yeah. So women took pride in the, in the way that they like held their fans and the way that they used them. You know, it was this sort of like a practice of coquetterie or, or flirtation, I guess I should say, um, and if, if in, in English. Um, and, and, and there was this one very specific social commentator, and she was an aristocrat. Her name was Madame de Steele. And she wrote, quote, the woman of breeding differs from others and her use of the fan. Even the most charming and elegant woman, if she cannot manage her fan, appears ridiculous. So, Laura, it kind of seems like that a fan was a requisite accessory for women of the upper class, right? Absolutely. And as she alludes, the way a woman handled and carried her fan was very much an indicator of her social standing. In the 18th century, affluent young women learned the correct way to handle a fan as part of their etiquette. Dexterous women use fans very much as extensions of their body mm-hmm. to non-verbally express a range of emotion. When we first presented this exhibition, it was presented as a complement to the special exhibition Casanova, the Seduction of Europe, which was on view at our sister institution, the Legion of Honor. And Casanova is an interesting character for many reasons. He's the Italian adventurer, philanderer, of course, the exhibition subject. Writer of erotica. Exactly. <laughs> Um, And in his history of my life, he talks about his female contemporaries signaling, gesturing, beckoning, and in one instance, hitting him with their fans to attract his attention. And it really seems like the fan is part of this extension of the arm and the body. Right, right, right. And, and, And this was like a time period when like, you know, women weren't necessarily given the voice that that we all have today. Like, you probably couldn't be a lady podcaster. Just saying in the 18th century, or as somebody sent me the other day, hashtag ladycaster. So that was mm-hmm. fun. Um, but it was a, a like an extension of their body language. And, and body language is a very real thing. This is how we non-verbally communicate to each other. So fans were kind of this extension of that and, and in a way to even like emphasize that sort of body language. But Laura, there's also this kind of, you know, it's a matter of some debate whether there was actually this sort of formalized 
secret code that women employed during the 18th century with their fans, 18th and 19th century, I should say. Um, what does your research tell us about this? Because I, I've, I've done a little bit of my own and you are way more down this rabbit hole than I am. <laughs> but it seems like there is, but there isn't. What's the real story there? So there is and there isn't. Um, various <laughs> sources mention users wielding their fans in accordance with coded languages. In these languages, the fans are positioned in different ways to spell out individual letters, to form words, or to convey emotions and desires. Now, it is unclear to what extent these languages were used. If we think about it from a practical standpoint, spelling out individual letters, for example, would have been quite cumbersome if you're trying to secretly or kind of quietly um, communicate with someone. But what's interesting is that some enterprising fan makers did interpret at least the idea of the languages into so-called conversation fans. And these were fans that had designs that were formed by directions for spelling words. So you could use your fan as a reference to spell out words. We also see that this idea of the languages is converted into romantic question and answer games in fans. Mm. Um, and in the 19th century, this tradition continues. Again, we think about Villaroy and their fan language leaflet. And it's something I will say I've given several tours of the show. And it's a question I always got on every single tour about the fan language um, because it's so pervasive today in popular culture. So will you tell us a little bit more about what Delvoy did in, in terms of the publishing this version of secret fan language? And if you want to get to the end of it and tell us about maybe what one of your favorite gestures is. Sure. So uh, as we've been talking about, Delvoy's fan language was in part a marketing tool and it was used to boost the sale of fans um, at a time when they had fallen somewhat out of fashion in the wake of the French Revolution. And of course, today, it's remained very much a popular myth in the history of fan. Um, for their guide, though, which I think is quite humorous, um, my favorite gesture is the idea of a quick open and shut movement with the fan, which expresses you are cruel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so this, this little guide that they published, um, it basically was, it would tell you what a particular gesture of holding a fan to your face, like if you held the fan to one side of your face, it could mean yes. Or the other side of your face, it could mean no. Um, one of my particular favorites was if you covered your left ear with an open fan, that meant do not betray our secret. <laughs> so some of these were incredibly complex, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and another thing that I found really interesting when I was um, doing a little bit of research to prepare to talk to you was about how the materiality of these fans, like what they were actually made from, was also a communication tool. And the type of fan that you were carrying could even symbolize your relationship status. And there was one French fashion magazine in 1880 that wrote about young girls. And they said that young girls were always to carry white silk fans on which flowers are painted. An engaged woman has lace, while waiting for the marriage fan, which must be a marvel, end quote. So, Laura, why would a married woman's fan be way more opulent than a young single woman? So in this case, it seems like they're talking about a marriage or a wedding fan, which in this case would be really opulent to mark the significance of the occasion. Um, as fans were a staple of the well-dressed women's wardrobe, they were made to suit a variety of occasions. 
These included balls, casual entertaining, um, church service, weddings, funerals. Um, in an earlier rotation, for example, we had an example of a morning fan from the collection. And this fan featured very solemn scenes that touched on the idea of loss and separation. And they were rendered on a white ground in a very somber black ink and wash. Um, and in the center, what we would see is a young man, perhaps a shepherd, taking leave of a young woman. And then if you flip the fan over, the back of it actually showed two small graves with crosses. Um, in the current rotation, we have a fan on view that was perhaps a wedding fan. And we think this because it's monogrammed on the back, which suggests that it was perhaps a gift either from a groom to his prospective bride, or it could have been a gift from a bride to her attendants. Yeah. And, and I think in general, in the 19th century, at least, that unmarried women tended to dress down, whereas married women were allowed to wear more luxury because it was kind of this signal that they were already married. And that if you were unmarried, you didn't want to wear clothing that was too luxurious because then you would be telling your future groom that you were going to be like high maintenance. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So as an unmarried woman, you kind of wanted to dress simply to attract a mate. That's because women didn't have their own money at the time. We do now. So you, Laura, you touched on this earlier, talking about this intersection of industrialization mm-hmm. and fans and like printed fans and, and, and how um, that affected like people, how people use them. Would you tell us a little bit more about this? Sure. So stylistically, and you were talking about it a little bit in that great quote about the um, styles from 1880. So stylistically, there's a transition from painted or printed pictorial subjects on fans to fans being made from textiles. And we see the heavy silks and satins found in women's costumes of the period being used in fans as well. Um, We also see at this point that fans are being considered as part of an entire complete ensemble, um, being outfit specific. And this makes sense if we think about the increased pace of women's fashions changing um, in the 19th century due to industrialization. Um, Fans made from textiles would have been much faster to produce than a perfectly hand-painted fan. We also see um, an abundance of birds and feathers on fans, which mimic the use of these materials in other areas of fashion, such as millinery. Millinery, yeah. Yes, and I know you have a great (laughs) podcast that talks about this murderous millinery. Um, So people are listening, check that out too. Um, But we definitely see this transition at this time. Yeah. And and also, too, in the 20th century, we start to see it's like the trickle down economics of fashion. Right. So when something is like this luxury object that is unobtainable, a few decades later, we're going to see as technology progresses this impulse to try to knock it off in whatever way that seems to be in that particular moment. But in the 20th century, we even start to see advertising fans. And they were literally advertising just about every single product under the sun. Um, Some (laughs) of my favorites happened to be cigarettes. There were fans created advertising resorts, restaurants, perfumes. And and speaking of perfumes, we actually have two advertising fans for Paul Paré's perfume company, Rosine, in our collection at FIT. They're two of my very, very favorite things that we have. Um, And and the designs in the front are by his interior design from Martine. Um, But on the reverse of the fans, they have a sort of radial grid. 
And within them are all the names of the perfumes, one by one by one. And then one of the grids will have a sticker on it. And that is what the perfume would have originally been scented with in the 1920s. I mean, it's amazing. But, but the 1920s, like they, they were still considered um, a really fashionable accessory. But that's kind of the last hurrah for fans in the 1920s. Do you have any thoughts as to why this might be? So we definitely see fans serving different functions in the early 20th century. Um, this is reflected in our collection at the museum as well. We have some really opulent examples um, that were intended to be worn for evening or falls or weddings. But we also have some that are advertising fans or fans that were used for propaganda. Mm -hmm. So in the Fine Arts Museum's collection, we have an advertising fan that promoted Singer sewing machines. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and this was made in Japan for export to the United States, where it was distributed at the Panama Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco in 1915. And you're in San Francisco yourself. Exactly. So now we have it here. And we also have a fan, again, dating to 1915, but made by de Villeroy, that shows the rooster of France. Um, and the idea for the fan was that it was celebrating French perseverance at the beginning of World War II. So very much a propaganda fan. I think some of these utilitarian uses of fans contribute to it becoming a less desirable object of fashion and luxury. Additionally, what we also see is women's roles are changing in the early 20th century, and this reflects what they're wearing. The founding curator of our department at the museum, the textile arts department, was a woman named Anna Gray Bennett. And in one of her writings, she remarked that rather than holding a fan, the fashion conscious person held a cocktail or a cigarette. The more serious and inclined picked up the banner of the suffragette, which I think is a really <laughs> great way of sort of thinking about the transition. It's like, get it together, ladies. Put those fans down and do something. Whether it's going to a party or, or petitioning for the right to vote, do it. Exactly. Yeah. So, Laura, we're about out of time today. Thank you so much. I mean, we've only covered about a few hundred years of the history of the fan. This is a brief overview. I mean, it is so much more nuanced if you really want to get into all of this. But I have one last question that I would like to ask you. And that is, in your show with the Ji Young, there have been two rotations because, of course, we can't leave these objects out on view for too long. They need to go back into their cold, dark spaces to, to, <laughs> to live for the rest of history. But do you have a favorite fan that's been in the show? And will you tell us about it? So it's a bit hard to pick. It's like picking a favorite child. But one of my favorites um, from the current installation is actually not a fan. It's a fan leaf. And it's from 1770 or 1780, made in France. As we've been talking about in the 18th century, it was not uncommon for a fan's leaf to be made in one country and it sticks in another. And fan leaves were also appreciated for their own aesthetic value and were sometimes left unmounted. So this fan leaf has a design that's rendered in very strong vertical lines, which would have accommodated its heating and mounting upon ribs. But what's interesting is that myself and my colleagues in the museum's object, paper, and textile conservation labs all examined the fan, and it lacks any discernible creases, suggesting that it was never assembled, it's only ever been mounted. What's also great about this particular fan is that it was displayed in the California Midwinter International Exposition in 1894, which is the display from which our museum developed. So it's also one of the longest standing fans in our holdings entering our collection in 1895. Laura, thank you so much and good luck 
with the baby. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for having me. Yeah. And, 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 um, and please let us know when she arrives. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, it really struck me that in many ways, some of the luxury fans you and her were discussing, April, were equivalent of a luxury handbag today. Yeah, very much so. And just in the same way, it was an enormous industry during the 18th and 19th centuries. And and the market for luxury fans is today much smaller. But some of these companies like Duvela Roy, which was founded in 1827, they're still in business. Oh, yeah. yeah, and, and and their offerings are really, really beautiful. I mean, they have bright printed cotton fans that are priced at about 45 euros. They offer peacock, feather, and mother of pearl fans for about 3,800 euros. And they kind of top out with some really beautiful artisanal work. Um, like one of their marquetry fans, which is, of course, all about inlay, tops out about 12 thousand euros (laughs) yeah and 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 that cast that's about the same price as like a mid-range birkin bag so naturally you and i are both ordering multiple versions of all of these things right absolutely and that's about the price range we saw with our chatelaines too a couple episodes ago so you know let's start stacking up the fashion history accessories Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider what your accessories communicate about you next time you get dressed. If you happen to be in the Bay Area, you still have time to see Laura's show until June 30th. So check out the exhibition Fans of the 18th Century at the De Young Museum. And if you cannot make it, we will be posting images of some of the spectacular fans we discussed here today on our Instagram, which is at dress underscore podcast. And this is also our Twitter handle. And you can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. Check out our merch store where everything is produced on demand because we love sustainability. And that is at tpublic.com forward slash dress. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dress. Where you can go to get your t-shirts, mugs, and lots of other fun fashion history swag. Be sure to tune in Thursday to our fashion history mini-sode where we answer your questions. And certainly last but not least, thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, who saved this episode. Thank you, Casey. Thank you, Casey and Holly Fry and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. Dress would also like to extend a very special welcome to the world to Gemma, who since the recording of the show arrived happy and healthy. Congrats to Laura and her growing family. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.